Are you excited? You think God's going to do something this morning? Uh, get your hopes up. It's the same God. We, we've been in a series of messages out of one verse that's kind of our verse for the year. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which says, uh, describing this new Christ-following band of believers, uh, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And we've said that this is going to be our outline for the year. We spent the first four weeks uh, of the year, all through January, talking about being devoted to prayer. Last week, Pastor Kevin brought an excellent word on being devoted to the fellowship, right? Outstanding word. And then after we got that, we went back into the gym and we broke bread together. And it was packed out. We had twice as many people who come that actually signed up. That was okay. I don't know, either God multiplied the food or y'all brought a lot of food. Either way, we had plenty of food. And I mean, I, only one criticism for that breaking of bread back there was uh, that we had no uh, Frank's hot sauce for the chicken. And uh, so if, if Dominic, Dominic, uh, if you're watching this online, bro, come back, man. I need my Frank's. Um, we had a great time. We're going to keep doing that. We're thinking about doing another one next month, and we're excited about that. And one of the things that uh, Kevin pointed out was that the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, and it means to share with, but it doesn't mean to share with as in, you know, I have two Skittles and I give you one and now we both have a Skittle. That, that, that's not the kind of sharing it means. It means to share as to participate in, like be in close association, to share life together. A lot of pictures that people have, I think, of the word fellowship is, you know, uh, two guys standing back in the fellowship hall. We had this fellowship hall back there. And, and people kind of picture it as, you know, a guy's got a styrofoam cup. He's got a cup of coffee. He's sitting next to the next guy. How was your week? Pretty good. My boss is kind of a jerk, though. Mine, too. Who do you think someone at the Super Bowl? I'm going for Cincinnati, but I think the Rams are going to win. I, like, that's the picture that a lot of people have of fellowship. But that, that's less what is being talked about here and more like the book, The Band of Brothers. I don't know if you've ever read this book or saw. There was a miniseries, Band of Brothers. It was written by Stephen Ambrose, and it's about E Company who was in the 101st Airborne Division in World War II. And this group of people in E-Company, they came together from all different backgrounds all across America, different education, different uh, jobs that they had before, different all kinds of strata of society. They came together to fight for freedom. And early on in the book, there's this story of Private Don Malarkey. He was from Oregon, and he said that being part of the 101st Airborne in E Company was the most momentous experience of his life. And then he said something that almost made me fall out of my chair the first time I read it. He said, there's not a day that goes by that I don't almost feel some gratitude for Hitler because I had to stand up and fight against him. And in fighting for freedom, I met the most incredible people on the planet. And we've formed a band of brothers ever since. That is closer to the word koinonia than styrofoam cups in a fellowship hall. Are you ready? That's the kind of thing that we're being called to. And last week, Kevin pointed out three marks of the early church fellowship that comes right out of Acts 2. They were, he said, a generous fellowship. They were giving to each other as they had need. They were, number two, a unified fellowship. They were together. 
And being together doesn't mean just in the same location. They were together in heart and mind and spirit. They were one. And then he said they were a growing fellowship because you get to verse 47 and it said, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So that was three points that he had last week. Today, I want to pick up where he left off with just one point. I have only one point today. All right? Huh? He had three. I had one. Just remember this. And please make sure to understand this point or else this message will be pointless. Okay. Here's the point. In addition to all of those, the early church fellowship was a powerful fellowship. Verse 43 in the text says, everyone was filled with awe. The Greek word is phobos, which is where we get our word phobia. It's fear. People were filled with that. Why? Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles, which means they were doing more than just talking about the kingdom. They were demonstrating the kingdom. And that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because isn't that exactly what Jesus did? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. What did Jesus preach? The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and not only preaching, but healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then when Jesus sent out the 12, he told them, do the same thing I've been doing, Matthew 10, verse 7. As you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. But look what he says. He doesn't say just preach it. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And then when the 72 came together and he gave them their marching orders, he told them to do the same thing. He said in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. And then after his resurrection, the message didn't change. Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, listen, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you're going to receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want you to not just preach the kingdom, I want you to demonstrate the kingdom. And you're going to need power for that. Now I want you to notice, the power there wasn't just power for power's sake. It was power to be a witness. It was power for a mission. Because the disciples of Jesus, and that includes you, we have a mission. And you're going to do, if you're going to do your mission, you're going to need his power to do his mission. Right? And so it's not power for power's sake. It's not power so you can flex your spiritual muscles in the mirror. As some people do more than others. I'm not looking at anybody in my family. (laughs) The power is not just for power's sake, it's power because we got a mission. And you see it, it, it happens in Acts chapter 3. You know, Peter and John, they're going up to the temple to pray. There's, uh, they get to the gate uh, called Beautiful. There's this guy who's been crippled since birth, the text says. So he's always been this way. And there's a feeling, isn't there? If you've always been this way, you feel like you're always going to be this way. And so here he is, he's crippled. Peter does the whole silver and gold have I none thing. Reaches out, stands up, he's a miracle, he's healed. And what does he do? Peter doesn't just say, well, we demonstrated the kingdom. No, then he preaches the kingdom. He preaches Jesus. People, religious leaders don't like that, so they threaten him. You better not do this anymore. And what do they do? They go to a prayer meeting. And in the prayer meeting, they ask for more of what got him in trouble. 
Give us more boldness. Stretch forth your hand to do miraculous signs and wonders. And here's what verse 33 says right after that in Acts 4. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Very next chapter, Acts 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And it was going on throughout the book of Acts. I mean, and Paul, when he saw was his first name, when he gets saved, he comes to the Lord. He becomes a follower, a disciple of Jesus. He starts preaching. And what does he preach? The same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And look, you guys, the power that Paul was talking about there and he taught his churches was, was, it was the power seen in miracles and signs and wonders, absolutely. And it was also the power to stand up under persecution. It was the power not to give up when things got really, really, really hard. In fact, this is what he said in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God. Have you ever had this thought? You ever wonder like how you would hold up under persecution? I ask myself this all the time because quite frankly, I don't even like going to the dentist. And with 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 apologies to the dentist in the room, who's my good friend, um, uh, uh, I, 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 you know, I don't like pain. So I wonder sometimes, how would I hold up if, if persecution really comes to this country like I think it probably will? How am I going to hold up? Well, according to this text, the way you hold up is the power of God. It's not all on you. Second Corinthians 12 verse 9, Paul said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So what did Paul say? He said, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, see, sometimes God's power is seen in the miraculous signs and wonders and the healings and the demons being cast out. And sometimes it's demonstrated when you run out of your own strength and you draw on his and you don't quit. You don't give up. That is spiritual power. And friends, we're living in an era where we need the power of the spirit as much as we ever have. Power to be witnesses of Jesus, power to demonstrate the kingdom, power to preach the kingdom, and power to go through persecution. Our society, you know this is true, is becoming increasingly more hostile to the gospel. And I don't have to cite any statistics or tell you an anecdote for you to believe that. You know that's true. We are entering into a season of redemptive history where it's going to require more than church growth techniques. It's going to require more than cute tips and marketing slogans and Facebook ads. It's going to take more than the eloquence of a preacher. It's going to require demonstration of the kingdom of God and the Spirit's power. Because he's the one that does it anyway. Uh, This was driven home to me several years ago when a very dear friend of mine preached uh, 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 certainly his worst message ever. um, And one of the worst ever here, and, and, and I say that with love, and, and I talked to him this week and asked if I could give this, uh, this uh, testimony, this story, so nobody feels sorry for him. 
He gave me permission. Uh, and so, Jim, if you're watching this, I told you I was going to tell this story. It was Jim Newsom. Now, Jim Newsom has preached some amazing messages here. He, he pre Remember the message, uh, the breeze is worth the flies? That was a great word. Uh, he had the one about the giving. When he preached on offerings were down, he came and preached on giving. Remember he had the different frying pans? You a tipper of God or a tither or you extravagant? He had these different frying, little bitty frying pan all the way up to this great big frying pan. Remember that? Great message. But there was one occasion when it wasn't. And, and what happened, I'll just tell you the story. What happened was uh, he had had a thing with his hand and he had hand surgery. For those of you from YWAM Orlando, we have like some of the world leading hand surgeons in the world here in Louisville. In fact, we did the first hand transplant, I think was done here in Louisville. So he, got, he goes to these and they do this surgery. Now, here's the thing about hand surgery. Your hand has a lot of nerves in it for obvious reasons. God designed it this way. And so it's painful. So I talked to Jim on the phone the week uh, he had had the surgery and it was leading up to he was going to preach on that Sunday. And I still remember the title, still have the notes actually, Fear Driven or Faith Driven Christianity. That was the title of the message. And so I called him on the phone and said, how you doing? How you feeling? He said, I'm doing okay, but I think I'm going to go off my pain meds before I preach on Sunday. And I, and I had this thought in my head, I don't, is, that, should we, should, is that a good idea? But I mean, I didn't. Like, this is early on in our relationship. Now, would be, I would say, dear God, Jim, no. But, but now, but back then, I didn't know. I, I just said, oh, okay, uh, really? Anyway, so he goes off his pain meds, but it was really painful. So on Sunday morning, he takes his pain med. And I don't know if he took extra or if it just had a bad reaction to him. But he comes to service that morning. This is when we were back in the other auditorium, okay? This, build, this, is, this building was not built. We're in the other auditorium. And, and it, it, everything was okay. He prayed with the elders before service, as, as guest speakers do. And it was seen okay. And he got up into, into, I introduced him. He got up into the pulpit. And uh, he said, let's pray. And he closed his eyes. And it, and it felt, I'm sitting on the front row, it felt like, I'm sure, much longer than it really was. But then he prays, and the prayer was okay, you know, it's fine. And then he says, uh, my text for today is, it was Isaiah something. Isaiah, and he, has, he says, turn to it. And he's, he got his Bible, and he's looking at it, and he goes, huh, where'd it go? And I knew what text it was, so I kind of whispered from the front, hey, Jim, it's, it's a few verses down. And he looks at it, and he goes, oh, there it is. And he reads the text. And then he says, let's pray. <laughs> he closes his eyes. Then he opens them and says, we already did that. <laughs> now, at this point, I'm on the front row giving birth to a cow. <laughs> I don't know what to do at this point. I, it, it, I went to seminary, never had a class, what to do when the guest speaker is high on pain meds. Never had the class. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. So I'm praying, do I go up? I thought it would be embarrassing if I stopped it, but maybe it's embarrassing if I let it go. And, and he, you know, he's hanging on to the pulpit for dear life. He gets through the message. It was, it was well, Jim, it wasn't that good, but the notes were awesome. <laughs> and then he invited the altar workers come forward, and he opens the altar, and people flood to the altar. The Spirit of God starts moving on people. I mean, people are crying. I don't want to be fear-driven. I don't want to know Jesus. I mean, there's snot all over the altar. There's like, like one dude who was a visitor, he got born again that day over here on one side. And then this lady who was from our church, she was in, had a knee brace. And some, one of the altar workers prayed for her, and she got healed, and she's moving around. And I'm looking up to God going, don't encourage him. What are you doing? 
And I was a little bit like Jonah. Remember Jonah preached to the Ninevites and they repent. He was like, God's going to burn you. You know, and then they repent and he gets mad. <laughs> See, God, this is why I didn't want to come because I knew you're gracious and compassionate and abounding in mercy and love. That's how I was. I was like, what? Goodness, God. That was, did you not hear that sermon? And I felt like I just had this impression in that moment, the Lord saying to me, son, I didn't even do this for him. I did it for you because you need to remember it is never about your eloquence. It is never about how well you preach. It is always my word that will never return void. And it's my Holy Spirit that changes people's lives. And don't you ever forget it. And I haven't forgotten it. So thank you, Jim. But please never do that again. Okay. Here's my point. We need more than eloquent messages. We need a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Francis Chan in his book, Forgotten God, uh, subtitled Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit, he says, do this thought experiment with me. He says this, if you were raised on a deserted island and you had nothing to read but the Bible, that's it. You had no Wi-Fi. You had no, and some of the young people are like, people live before Wi-Fi? Yes, we did. <laughs> and all you had was the Bible. And for 20 years, you're doing nothing but reading the Bible, and you think church is supposed to be like the book of Acts, and then you got rescued, and you got brought to the church in America, what would you think? Would you see a gap between the stuff you read in the book and what you're seeing experienced in the, in the assembly? I think you all know there is a gap between it. The problem that bothers me is sometimes it doesn't even bother us anymore. And look, come on, it's easy to critique the church in America. You don't need a spiritual gift, okay? I, I once had a lady in my office, no kidding, she, told, she was telling me what I was doing wrong, and then she said, oh, my spiritual gift is to critique pastors. <laughs> I'm like, I miss that Bible verse. Where, at the list of gifts, I don't remember. Get, criticism is not a gift of the Spirit, okay? You don't need the Holy Ghost to criticize somebody. Right? So I'm not criticizing anybody else. I'm just, I'm going to talk about myself. I need this kind of power for service. Because sometimes I look in the mirror and sometimes I do see power. And sometimes, all too often, I see a stunning lack of power. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I say to myself, really? Like, really? Almighty God lives in you? Like the God who said, let there be and there was, lives in you? Like the God who marches the stars out each night and calls them each by name because of his mighty power, not one of those. He lives inside of you. The God, the God who said to the ocean, stop right there, and it obeyed him. That God lives inside of you, and you still cranky? How is that even possible? How is it even possible? Almighty God lives on the inside of me, and I'm still self-centered? I still find it hard to forgive people sometimes when they are silly. And I ask for God, you know, when people are unresponsive to my leadership, you know, could you give them a tummy ache or something? Like, I don't really do that. I've done it a couple times, but I don't I try not to. Here's my point. It doesn't fit. Almighty God lives in us and we're petty? What? Are you kidding me? Uh, Francis Chan, still in the book, he, he, he does another thought experiment. He said, what if I came to you and said that the Spirit of God came to me and filled me to be a good basketball player? Like, what if I told you, this is like a 30 for 30. What if I told you, 
Last night, I was at my house, and after the UFC fights were over, we were, which would have been early this morning, uh, we were praying, and the Spirit of God came down and said, I'm going to fill you up and make you a basketball player. And then we went, wouldn't you expect my jump shot to get better? Right? And, and wouldn't you expect that even though I'm a 50-year-old white boy out of shape, I'd still be dunking on somebody? If, if God came on the inside of me to make me, wouldn't you think I'd be a little bit better? And if I wasn't, if you saw no improvement to my athleticism, would you then ask the question, did you really have an encounter? Here's my point. If we've had an encounter with the living God, shouldn't we be different? Shouldn't we be different? And sometimes I am. And sometimes I'm not. So here's the question today. That was my intro. I know some of you are like, oh, sweet Jesus, that was the intro. Don't worry. It's okay. In the hands of a lesser congregation, I would be nervous, but this is new life. Right? Here's the question. If the early church's fellowship was characterized by power, how can our fellowship be characterized by power? I mean, what did they do? If you have your Bible, slip open to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to pick up where I left off a few weeks ago after a prayer, and I want you to see there's a connection between prayer and unity and power. Now, here's the big idea. Unity in the Spirit is the basis of power in the church. Listen, unity isn't some cute little thing, right? I'm not preaching unity so my job would be easier. I'm not. I'm preaching unity because unity in the Spirit is the basis of power in the church. So Acts chapter 4, you know, they've been told not to preach in the name of Jesus. Uh, They go and pray for more boldness and for miracles. Verse 31 says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all, not some of them, all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And that, a few weeks ago when I was preaching Acts 4, that's where we stopped. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, look in your own Bible, and you'll see what happens next is connected to what just happened. See, there's, we have these chapter and verse headings in our Bibles, and we have these subsections where there's a heading there. And, and you need to remember, that was not part of the inspired text. When it, the chapter and verse headings really didn't come into vogue until the 13th century, okay, and didn't get standardized until the 16th century. And you don't have to go to Oxford or to Jerusalem to find biblical, ancient biblical texts that don't have chapter and verse. You just got to go to St. Matthew's. At Southern Seminary, they have a text called the Codex Robertsonianus. You can see a picture of it up here. Here's a picture of it. You can't, and you, you can't just walk in and see this. You got to get permission. Uh, and, and when I was a student there, we went in, and you notice you can't touch it with your hands. You have to use these metal things. You turn it. And there's a picture up close. And I don't know if you can see that. I know that's kind of far away. But, but you'll notice this is the text of the Gospels, and there are no chapter or verse breaks. Because the inspired authors didn't say chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 2. They just wrote as the Holy Spirit moved on them. And you say, why is this important? Because what actually happens in verse 32 happened as a result of verse 31 and previous. It was because of their corporate time of prayer that led to a filling of the Spirit that led to what I'm about to read, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Stop right there. I'm going to keep reading, but uh, did you notice it was great power and, and great grace? The, the word in Greek is mega. They were, the, the apostles were with mega power and mega grace. Don't you like that? I like, my favorite prehistoric animal is the megalodon, which was a giant shark that ate everybody. And, and according to paleontologists. And, and, and so that's, my, that's why I like the word mega. But this is mega grace and mega power. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now watch the flow of this argument. If you're not careful, you'll, you'll miss the flow of what just happened. And, and wait, this helps me sometimes to have a chart to kind of draw out what happened to see it. So I want you to see it in this chart. It starts out with corporate prayer. So they're told, they're threatened, don't preach in the name of Jesus. They come together and they have a time of corporate prayer. That time of corporate prayer leads to a time of corporate filling of the Spirit. Notice it says, they were all filled with the Spirit, right? That, that, that's what it says. That's what happened in verse 31, uh, and, and that led into 32. So the immediate result, though, of that filling of the Spirit was a breathtaking unity. They were one in mind and heart. And that issued in mega power. That's what the very next verse says. The, the apostles are doing stuff, but they're testifying with mega power, and it issues in generosity. Now, this is the flow of the text. Now, let's, let's, let's kind of walk through it as we, just to see this. Verse 32 says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. That leads me to this question, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be one in heart and mind? I mean, if, if unity is so important, if unity in the spirit is the basis of power in the church, then what does it mean to be one in heart and mind? Does it mean we all have to think the same? Do we have to think the same to, to all be one? Do we have to vote the same? Like, like in the board meeting, do we have to all vote the same to be in unity? Is, it, is that unity or is that just being unanimous? I mean, do we all have to dress the same? Like if we all buy the Acts 242 shirt, which you should. You, you should. Okay? But you can buy the Acts 242 shirt and we'll just be in uniformity, not unity necessarily. There's a difference. And I say that with you, wanting you to buy two Acts 242 shirts and send us to Mexico. Okay, here's the point. What does it mean? Does it mean we have to cheer for the same NFL team? I mean, if it does, we're in trouble. We're in trouble because I got one friend back here, Brandon. He, he's a Green Bay Packer fan. What am I do with that? And I got a friend over here, Michael Bogans. He, he's, a, he's from Chicago. He's a, a Bears fan. And notice... They sit as far apart as they can. They got the Packer fan in the back corner and the Bear fan in that corner over there. And Skull Vikings, baby, that's right. That's right. And then we got the Vikings fan, the Frozen Chosen. Here's my point. If we got to all get on the same page, we ain't going to be in unity. That's not unity. Unity of one in heart and mind is more like a man and a woman who become one flesh. It's, it's when, when a husband and a wife, the two become one, and, and, which means what hurts her hurts me. Right? It's, it's like being a family. That's the, being one in heart and mind is like being part of a family so that you take up for each other. Um, when, when the boys were younger, and I can't even remember, 
who this happened to, which of the four, but they're all there, and something happened to one of them in our neighborhood. It was, they were much younger, and, and the other three maybe didn't take up for them the way they should have, and so I was trying to encourage them to take up, you know, if, you know take up for your brothers, uh, but being a young father, I was a little over the top. I know you're shocked. You're like, you? Over the top? A little. Little. So I was a little over the top, and so instead of just saying, hey, take up for each other, I said, look, if one of you come home bleeding, you better all come home bleeding. Which is a little, you know, because they were like, okay, daddy. Uh, but here's my point. You know what? I think that's how the church ought to be. Huh? If Bob comes home bleeding, guess what? I guess I'm coming home bleeding. Because if he's in a fight, so am I. That's because we're one in heart and mind. You ask the question, well, then, okay, so how do you get to that place? How do you become one in heart and mind? Well, according to the text, which is the authority, right? Not my opinion. What the scripture says is the authority. That unity came as a result of the filling of the spirit, not man-made rules. You can't produce that kind of unity with rules. Can't do it. You can't preach a sermon on this, which as it turns out I'm doing right now. And you can't make people be in unity with the sermon because the sermon can't give you the power to actually do what the sermon is saying. You can't do this with the retreat. You can't do it with the program. It has to be the filling of the Spirit. And here was why. The way they demonstrated their oneness in the text was not just through mega power. It was through radical generosity. Did you see that? They gave sacrificially for each other and to each other. You can't produce that with a rule. You can't make that happen with a sermon. It's got to take the Holy Spirit. The apostles never established a rule. They just said, listen, we need everybody here to sell all your property, bring all the money, and set it right here. No. It was just, they were just responding to the Spirit. It was a spontaneous thing. It was led by the Spirit. It flowed from their heart. Unity comes from the fullness of the Spirit. You don't make it happen. And what happens here is the fullness of the Spirit leads to unity, and out of the unity comes generosity. And one way that unity is demonstrated is by generosity. Listen, a unified church is a generous church. I mean, often we think of the proof of the Spirit being present here is the gifts of the Spirit, and, and, that, and the gifts are good. That is one way that it, we see the Spirit, right, right? There's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, all of those things, right? That, and that is the fruit of the Spirit, absolutely, uh, for sure. But in Acts 4, the proof, the fruit, the difference the Spirit made was radical generosity. And it took people's breath away. See, according to Acts 4, when the fullness of the Spirit happens, as one author puts it, the heart is loosened in relationship to things and tightened in relationship to people. It is good. I wish I had written it. I stole it from John Piper. I stole it. I just stole it from him. Now, I'm going to say it again. When the Spirit comes, when the fullness of the Spirit happens, the heart is loosened in relationship to things and tightened in its relationship to people. In fact, I would put it this way. One of the ways to measure the work of the Spirit in your life, we said that a few weeks ago, is one of the ways is your desire for the Word, and we're going to get to they were devoted to the apostles' teaching soon, maybe a few weeks from now. I make no promises. We're going to get there. 
But one of the ways you see the work of the Spirit in your life is your desire for the Word. Here's another way. Are you free from the love of things and firm in your love of people? And then Luke doesn't want this just to pass us by. He doesn't want you to read this as if this is just a summary statement and we go to the next thing. So he goes, I'm going to give you two examples. And if you read Luke, Luke and Acts, Luke often does this. He does this thing with couplets, right? He gives you a positive and a negative example. Basically, Luke is saying, I got some good news and I got some bad news, okay? First, the good news, first, the positive, verse 36. Now, he's talking about this generosity that's a result of the Spirit. He says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we got this dude, and his name is Joseph, and he goes by Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So his name literally is Joe Encouragement. That's what he is. And that's what he does. He encourages people. Here he encourages by generosity. Later in the story, when nobody wants to mess with Saul, you know, Saul was killing people, throwing people in prison. And then when he, he gets converted, becomes a disciple of Jesus, he comes to the church in Jerusalem, and they don't want to have anything to do with him. And before you judge them, if somebody walked in today who had thrown your brother into prison and he died in prison and wanted to come to church, praise God. Would you say, oh, brother, come on and sit on the front row. You might struggle with that. And they did. You know what happened? Barnabas went to them, and he was a bridge builder between the apostles and, 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 and Saul. And he did that. And, and later, when, when Saul, Paul wanted nothing to do with John Mark, Barnabas was reaching out to him. He was a bridge builder. He was a peacemaker. And later at the end of his life, Paul said, bring me John Mark. <laughs> he changed his mind. Here's my point. He was an encourager. And sometimes he encouraged with words, and sometimes he encouraged with action, and sometimes he encouraged by giving. I'll never forget, many years ago, uh, Marlene and I lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and, um, and she uh, was pregnant, and we lost our first child in fourth month or so of pregnancy. And we lived in Minneapolis, so my parents were down here. Her parents lived in Canada, and so we were in a place where we had no family around, and that's a hard thing, you know, and, 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 and when, it, when you lose your first one, you know, the enemy starts putting questions in your mind like, can we have children? Turns out, boy, can we ever. <laughs> but we didn't know that at the time. And out of the blue, from this church, two couples came up to Minneapolis, Joe and Lita Hardy and the Cooks, drove their motorhomes up to Minneapolis. They were going to Canada on a vacation. They called us up. And, and, and this is, listen, not only were we kind of in a dark place, but we had no money. And some of you think when I say we had no money that there was only $1,000 in the Dave Ramsey emergency fund. <laughs> no, there weren't no Dave Ramsey emergency fund back then. I didn't have no $1,000. We had no money. And they called us up and said, can we take you out to dinner? And they took us out for a steak dinner. Have filet mignon. Boy, it was good. It tasted extra good. And they, we, we worked at Bethany House Publishers at the time, and we gave them a tour of where we worked, and, and they parked their motorhome that night. And the next day, as they were saying goodbye, they were going to go on their trip. Joe Hardy walks up to me to shake my hand. Now, y'all remember Joe Hardy. You got to get ready for the handshake. Because if you don't get in there, he's going to grab your fingers. 
He always wants to show you how strong he was. So I'm like, I'm ready. I, st- I stretched before. I- and I got it, and I got there, I got in a good one. And when I got in there, there was a $50 bill in the palm of his hand. We, we used to, we used to call, yeah, that's right, Dad. We used to call that the Pentecostal handshake. Because you feel something when it happens. You feel it. All over and I'm, wow, you know, and then Charlie Cook comes up, and I don't know if Charlie was like, I don't know if they planned this, or if Charlie was just like, Joe ain't going to outdo me. I, could be either way, don't know. Charlie comes up, handshake, there's a $50 bill in his. So now I have two $50 bills. In other words, $100. Just helping you with the math. Now, some of you may be thinking right now, it's $100. That's a big deal. Oh. Oh, you have no idea. Because that wasn't just $100. Let me tell you what that was. That was God saying, son, I know you're in a dark place. Daughter, I know you're in a dark place, but I can see in the dark. And if I have to, I can take somebody from Louisville, Kentucky, in a motorhome that gets five miles to the gallon and drive them all the way up to Minneapolis to bring you 50 bucks to tell you I know where you live. You know what? Joe's gone on to be with the Lord. He's on the other side, but I'm going to see him again. And when I see Joe again, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get ready for the handshake, first of all. I'm going to stretch. And I'm going to get in there good, and then I'm going to say, hey, Joe, you remember that time? Remember that time you came to Minneapolis, you gave me 50 bucks? You thought it was 50 bucks. It was God speaking to me. Now, here's the point. You know what, guys? You, I don't care who you are, anybody here, you can be a Barnabas today to somebody else. You can speak a word of encouragement. You can give to people. And you might say, well, it might, it's, just, it's just a few. No. It could make all the difference to them. So Barnabas, what does he do? He sells his field, this field. He puts the money at the disciples' feet with no strings. And notice he doesn't do it going, hey, I'm putting the money at the apostles' feet. Everybody looking? Hey, hey, hey. Y'all see over here? Look, look, look. No, he was free of the love of money. Mammon had no control over him. But not everybody was on the same page. In fact, Satan knew the danger of this to his kingdom and what would happen. And so he tries to attack the unity of the church. So he hatches a master plan. And this part of the story is very sobering. I'm just going to warn you. Because he, he moves on a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Now, when I was a kid in children's church, you know, the teachers wanted to soften this story because it's kind of intense. You know, it just can be scary for a little kid, you know. There was this couple, they came to church, and they died. <laughs> we'll see you in church next Sunday. I mean, what? That would be hard for a kid. So what did you do? What do you do when you do kids? You have a little song about it that kind of softens it a little bit. You remember the song? Ananias and Sapphira got together to conspire, a plot to cheat the church and get ahead. They knew God's spirit but did not fear it. Tried to cheat the Holy Spirit. Peter prophesied it and they both dropped dead. Hey, God loves it. You're forgiver. Give him all you got. He loves to see you laughing when you're in an awful spot. So when the odds are up against you and you cannot do a thing, praise God. To praise him is a joyous thing. Ho! Okay. How many... Raise your hand if you remember that song from Children's Church. Not very many. Okay, that illustration might not work. It is, how many, okay, how many of you are glad I'm not the praise and worship leader? Go ahead. Okay, a lot more of you. Okay, that's fair. That's, that's, 
that's fair. But the truth is, this is a sobering story. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, just like Joe Encouragement did. They also did that. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Now stop right there. Notice he said, Satan has filled your heart. Now compare that to earlier, the disciples were filled with the Spirit. Now he's filled with Satan. Only one other person in Luke are we told Satan entered. Do you remember who it was? Judas. Outstanding, Shanette. Gold star. You're on it. So, so you know this is probably not going to end well. The last time Satan went into somebody, that brother is dead. Right? Now, here's the other disturbing part of this. Apparently, Satan on occasion goes to church. Now, note the contrast. They were full of the Spirit, and what was the result of the fullness of the Spirit? There was unity. They were one in heart and mind. They demonstrated it with mega power and radical generosity. Now, Ananias is full of Satan, and the fruit of that is division demonstrated by greed. Verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Which gives whole new meaning to the phrase, slain in the spirit. <laughs> and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? See, I don't think he's happy about this. I think it's, he's broken. How could you do this? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, I guess so. Imagine the buzz. They dying over at that church. Now, let me point out just a couple things because this is a disturbing text. The first thing I want to point out is, I'm going to ask the question, who killed them? Wait, wait, what does the text say? But remember, remember, the authority is not what you always thought. The authority is the scripture. What is it? Does it say? It says they felt it. Peter prophesied it, but that, he didn't kill him. You know, you may have wanted to kill somebody, but you don't get to. That's not, that's not part of our role. He prophesies what's going to happen, but he didn't kill him. I mean, does the text say God killed him? Does it say, and God struck him down? Or does it say they fell down dead? Is it possible? Because look, this happened after Jesus has already paid for the sins. He's already borne the wrath of God on the cross when this story happens. That's already happened. And we believe, don't we? Doesn't the New Testament teach that when Jesus died on the cross, he bore all the sin 
of humanity of all time, reaching all the way back to the sin of Adam and Eve in the beginning, and all the way to the last sin is committed by the last man or woman who walks on this earth before the new heavens and the new earth, that Jesus in that moment on the cross paid for all of it? Every sin you've ever committed in your past and every sin you're going to, he already paid the price. So what's going on here? Here's what I would submit to you. And if, look, if you disagree with this interpretation, it's okay, you know. Just say, I don't, uh, maybe I don't agree. You don't need to put it on Facebook. <laughs> what if, what if sin carries with it its own punishment? And the reason God is telling us not to sin is because there's punishment and judgment that comes with it. It's not even him striking people down. It's like in the sin itself. And if he has to, he can remove his hand. And then sin plays out its own course, which is death. Is that possible? The second thing I want you to see with this, I want you to look at this. Verse 11, this is incredible to me. Verse 11 is the first time in Acts that Luke has used the word church. The Greek word is ekklesia. Now, why in the world would you do this? Why would you, the first time you say the word church is when somebody is dying. This isn't good marketing protocol. I mean, this is, I mean, you're going to associate the word church with dying. What is Luke trying to say? Here's what I think he's trying to say, and then I'll be done. I think Luke is trying to point out that the church is a place where the presence of God is real and really experienced. In other words, there is power in the fellowship. What did Ananias and Sapphira do wrong? They loved money. They apparently loved religious approval. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, they were fracturing the unity of the church. They were trying, they were discrediting the Holy Spirit. It was an assault on the Holy Spirit. And maybe, I don't know, maybe they, it, it was just the, the Satan enter, entering into them. Or maybe it was just the fact that they thought, well, maybe the Holy Spirit's not present. Or maybe they thought grace means do whatever you want. I don't know. But I know this, sometimes we have a similar thing in church today where some people come to worship and they operate on a totally human level, never reckoning with the real living presence of God. Oblivious to the fact that God is here and he is real. And so I hear in this text, I, I think Luke wants you to be a little bit like, oh, whoa. I, I, I think that's part of what Luke is trying to say is that, look, God is here. This isn't a game. And the early church was, was, was a, they, listen, they were a joyful church, and we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, they were, you read the New Testament, it, the pages of the New Testament are like dripping with joy and suffering for persecution, both at the same time. And I think Luke wants to say, look, you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, there's going to be persecution, but there's power. And that unity, that power comes not because of a rule, not because of a sermon, not because of a program. It comes because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you are part of a powerful fellowship.